and Merry Christmas, my fellow assassins, to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So, Merry Christmas, everyone. I hope you are enjoying some time with family, um, hopefully eating lots and lots of Christmas cookies. I know I will be, um, and just enjoying the time, you know, giving gifts and all the good things that come with Christmas, food, presents, cookies, you know, all the good stuff. Um, So hope you are having a very nice and merry Christmas. Um, And, you know, for this episode, it it was funny because when I recorded last week's episode, I was thinking, I was like, man, I'm going to have I'm going to really struggle here to come up with a, a segment for, you know, the nerdy things I was up to this week. But uh, boy, howdy, did my home lab have other ideas, and it it delivered with one fantastic Christmas present to me, which personally I don't know if I necessarily wanted, uh, but but yeah, we're we're gonna get into that. So without any further ado, let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So the the first thing before we get into the whole home lab drama was. Uh, I, I know I've mentioned, you know, I've, I've written a decent amount of scripts over, over the years that, like, have, have, like, a certain functionality, but, like, they're not, like, you know, big enough to essentially justify them being their own, like, project, if you will. So I never really knew what to do with them, and they were kind of all scattered around, like, various computers and on different, you know flash drives and just trying to it, it, I, I wanted you know a nice place to consolidate all of them since a couple of times I found myself thinking you know I'm pretty sure I wrote a script for this but I have no idea where it is so then I end up like essentially writing a, another one <laughs> to do the same exact thing as a script I already had um, so I decided to consolidate all that and put that all in a git repo that so basically everything can be all in one place. So that was a big win. And then now getting into the gift my home lab gave me. So initially, when I was thinking about this episode, I was like, yeah, you know, pretty boring week. You know, it was a short week before I left uh, to go on vacation for Christmas and New Year's. But, you know, I did some updates and yeah, that was about it. But, um, yeah, no, my home lab had other ideas. So I don't know if it, like, caught wind that I was going to be leaving and wasn't going to be around for, like, two-ish weeks or so. And it just decided, like, I don't know if that was the reason. Um, And it was like, you know, because you're not going to be around to play with me for two weeks, I'm going to go cause some chaos to make up that time now. Now, granted, this partially was my fault I'm not gonna say it was totally my fault but like it was definitely partially my fault because I decided to go with the old IT what all the IT infrastructure people do like right before like right around the holidays and like you know 
perform the updates now. So we have the IT people on staff. So if something breaks during the updates, uh, we can get that fixed before everyone leaves. Um, so I decided to do that. And things actually went pretty well. So I decided to upgrade all of my, my Macs to macOS Ventura. Now, only one of my Macs is actually officially supported, that being my 2017 MacBook Pro. Um, so obviously that update, you know, obviously as you'd expect, had no issues whatsoever. Um, and then I also upgraded my Mac Mini, my 2015 MacBook Pro, and my Mac Pro as well uh, through OpenCore Legacy Patcher. Um, and I was able to get all those running, everything was working great, except for I did have an issue with the Mac Pro, uh, but we'll get into that. Um, and then I was going to also install Ventura on my Xserve 2. I was a little hesitant about that one, mainly because, like, uh, part, I guess, kind of going back to around Thanksgiving, uh, nerdy things that I will be doing this week, uh, I plan on running my backup script again and the only way I can do that is if my XServ is operational. So I was a little hesitant on, you know, doing a big update like this so close to uh you know, when I was planning on making sure it needed to be usable. Um but I decided I'd I'd, I'd give it a go anyway. Um all the other installs worked fine, so what the heck. Um so I, I didn't do that the same day that I installed my other Ventura on my other machines, mainly because I, I kind of ran out of time and it was late and I wanted to go to bed. Uh, so then the next day, I had a little bit of jankiness that I had to perform. I didn't go full jank because I, I felt like that had been a little too much work because for whatever because there is some issues with Ventura and OpenCore where certain like USB ports have issues. So I wasn't, a I had the same issue on the Mac Pro, but I was able to get around it because I had a, uh, a PCIe card that has like more modern USB ports on it, mainly so I can get faster transfer speeds through USB. Uh, so I was able to get around it that way. So I had the same problem on the XServe and I couldn't uh, like plug in the mouse and keyboard to it and it just well I could it just it just wouldn't recognize them once it actually booted into the installer so I could have gone full jank mode and essentially taken the the PCIe card out of the Mac Pro put it into the Xserve but in order to put it into the Xserve I'd have to take it out of my rack open it up pull the PCIe card that's already in there that holds the SSD and I because I couldn't take the other card out since that's the graphics card and that kind of sort of needs to be in there so I would have to take the SSD out put the uh, USB card in and then close it back up and then plug the USB installer mouse and keyboard and uh, a SATA adapter for the SSD all into like a dongle to plug into the Xserve just to install uh, Ventura and then put the SSD back in it. So it would have been a little janky. Um, so I did a little less janky maneuver, took the SSD out, uh, plugged it into an external um, 
USB to SATA adapter and then plugged that into my MacBook and then installed Ventura that way. And that seemed to work. Um, it, it came up to the login screen like the upgrade worked like it should. Um, so I figured it was, it was good. So then I went to go put it back into my XServe and tried to boot it up and I didn't have any luck. And I was like, well, that stinks. Um, so then I went to go try to, uh, log into my Mac mini and my Mac pro, which I will mention my Mac mini when I went upstairs to like check on it like when I was going to uh put the SSD back in the Xserve I saw it was on like the boot picker and I was like huh that's pretty weird um and then I got this um this error message but before that I want to talk about the Mac Pro for a second because the Mac Pro before um, I ran into these issues that I'm going to get into. The Mac Pro had an issue, which I I should have known about if I actually would have read the documentation <laughs> a little closer. So one of the issues with the Mac Pro with Venture, at least as of right now, is the Bluetooth card that I have in it isn't supported. Uh, they don't have they haven't figured out a driver yet for it, so Bluetooth doesn't work, which isn't necessarily a huge deal, but I use a Bluetooth keyboard, mouse, and trackpad for my Mac Pro, so that would have been kind of annoying to actually have to use wired peripherals, uh, because obviously everyone knows that a uh, system's performance is partly based on how good it looks, uh, just like with cars. So that's like, I mean, if you mean to tell me that the reason, like, you know, a battle station with, like, a triple monitor setup performs better than, like, the average home PC with a single monitor is strictly due to the fact that the battle station has a more powerful CPU, more RAM, faster storage, and a dedicated graphics card, and not because the setup looks cooler? Uh, I don't know. That that might be that might be a stretch. But here's here's another one. Since I I mentioned uh, cars have the the same effect, so you mean to tell me that it's just a coincidence that a Toyota Prius performs significantly worse than a Lamborghini Aventador when the Aventador looks a bajillion times cooler? It's just, it's just a coincidence is what you're saying. So you mean to chop it up to the fact that the Aventador has a V12 over 700 horsepower, 500 pound-feet of torque, better aero, and is overall built to be a performance car, whereas the Prius is built to be a fuel-efficient car, and that's the reason why the Aventador per performs better. Right. So to further drive home this point that aesthetics make the performance... Um, I'm going to give you some hard science and fact-based evidence, which, in all honesty, is probably is almost certainly peer-review research journal-level quality, and uh, totally not 100% anecdotal evidence based on my own experience and bias, uh, and that is that when my car is clean, I would say it's easily 20% more, has 20% more performance, easy. Like, it's not even close. And, I mean, it doesn't get more controlled than that, now does it? I mean, the same car, clean versus dirty. I mean, 
come on, that's about as, you know, controlled experiment as you can get, am I right? It's not like we're using two of the same model of car. We're using the, literally the exact same car. So there shouldn't be any difference in the performance unless it's because of the cleanliness. So obviously, as you can see, uh, aesthetic does have a significant impact on performance. So with that in mind, because of the fact that I'll have to have visible wires on my desk now rather than, you know, the nice clean aesthetic of Bluetooth peripherals, probably going to be looking at a 5 to 10% performance hit if I'm being completely honest with you. But I didn't even get a chance to test that hypothesis because of the issues that arose after the install finished. So the install finished and both the Mac Mini and the Mac Pro were working completely fine, aside from that Bluetooth issue on the Mac Pro. Um, but then the next day, around the time when I was going to put the SSD back in the Xserve, like I mentioned, I saw the Mac Mini had, was on the boot screen, the boot picker, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, and then out of nowhere, like when I tried to, you know, boot, like reboot it and boot into macOS, I got this error message saying the version of macOS on the selected disk needs to be reinstalled. Use recovery to reinstall macOS or select another startup disk. And I was like, OK, uh, what the heck is going on here? Because this was working perfectly fine yesterday. So I don't know what happened between yesterday and today, because at least the Mac mini on OpenCore's site doesn't have any listed known issues with it like the Mac Pro does. So I found that kind of strange. What I also found kind of strange was after that happened, I went to go boot up the Mac Pro and I got literally the exact same issue saying that the version of macOS on the selected disk needs to be reinstalled and use recovery to reinstall macOS or select another startup disk. Now, I just find it really weird that within the span of like 24 hours, both of these machines go down and have the exact same issue, which was super weird to me. The thing that's weird is, at least as of right now, knock on wood, my 2015 MacBook Pro hasn't had that issue at all. So I really don't know if this is like if this was just a bug in the install process or if this was a problem with the machines, if it's the problem with the patcher, I honestly have no idea what the issue is. But basically what I had to do was completely nuke the Ventura updates from the Mac Pro, Mac Mini, and Xserve because the only way that I could fix the issue was to wipe the drive and then reinstall Monterey on it because you can't you can upgrade your version of macOS to a newer one but you can't downgrade to an older version unless you completely wipe the drive so yeah because I tried going into macOS recovery and running the first aid option through disk utility that didn't work I attempted to reinstall Ventura and that also didn't work. So my only option was to completely wipe the drive and reinstall Monterey. So it was a good thing 
that uh, this install attempt happened before the IT department went on vacation. Um, so they could be on call to uh, fix the issue. Now, if you're wondering if that you're if you're wondering to yourself, wait, I have you have an IT department? Yeah, it's called me. Uh, I am the IT department. Uh, if you don't get that reference, uh, prequels are the prequel Star Wars prequels, fantastic. Which a little bit of a tangent here. Can you imagine like? the IT people that are in charge of running that infrastructure. Since if you ever look at, like, for example, like the Death Star scenes, like all those like gadgets and like blinky lights and all those like consoles and computers everywhere. I'm interested to know, like, how that IT infrastructure works. That would would be really interesting. Um, Yeah, anyway. uh, So, yeah, for I don't know why, but I mean, I'm obviously I'm not complaining. Uh, but my, for whatever reason, my 2015 MacBook Pro has not had any issues and has been continuing to work. So I, I'm not exactly sure what the what's going on here. Um, but, you know, in all honesty, it sounds really bad. Like, I had to completely wipe my installs of Monterey on three different computers all at the same time. Uh, but in all honesty, it was more of an annoyance and really than anything like it like yeah it's it's annoying that I have to reinstall but it's not like you know I lost all my data because one I have backup strategies uh but two all those machines um Monter- or yeah Monterey and then Ventura was installed on an SSD and which in all three of those cases the Mac mini the Mac Pro and the Xserve the SSD almost entirely purely functioned as just a boot drive and to hold my applications on it so applications would launch pretty quickly. Like, all my actual data was either was stored on some kind of other storage. Uh, for example, in the case of my Mac Pro, uh, the Mac Pro has multiple internal hard drive slots, so all my you know coding projects and whatnot was stored on those, not the actual internal SSD. And then my Mac Mini, if you're not aware, uh, the 2012, I believe the 20, basically the any Mac Mini aside from like the new ones, anyone that uses like SATA storage, you can buy like an upgrade kit for it that you can actually install too. Uh, drives in it so I have two drives installed in mine I have an SSD which I just use for booting and then I have an actual hard drive in there also which houses like all my my entire user folder and like all the other like files that I want on there so yeah I had to wipe the install but really I didn't lose any data because of that Um, and then as far as the XServe I mean (laughs) that thing just I mean it's a server so I mean, literally the only thing on the SSD was the OS. Everything else was on the internal RAID array of hard drives, which obviously that didn't get nuked at all. Um, So the one thing that was kind of annoying about the XServe was, I guess guess we'll get into that uh, now. Uh, The one thing that was kind of annoying about the XServe was I tried to reinstall Monterey and it wouldn't work. And I couldn't figure out why it wouldn't work. And then eventually I decided, well, I guess part of the thing was the SSD inside my XServe had two partitions on it. 
One of them was macOS Lion, so I could manage the uh, the lights out management port and whatnot. And the other one was the Monterey install. So I think what the problem was, because there was another macOS version on there, the install process was getting messed up because it was trying to, when it would reboot itself during the install process, it would like boot into the macOS Lion install rather than going back to the installer and that was like messing it up. So I had to completely wipe that drive, Get you had to even get rid of the macOS Lion install, which was really annoying. But then, I mean, it's it's just an OS install. So, and again, there was no data on there anyway. Like, yeah, there was some applications on there, but I can easily get those back. I have the the installer's already saved, so I can just easily reinstall them if I need to or want to. So that's, I mean, it's not like an issue or a big deal. It's just more of an, a nuisance than anything, um, which, uh, which I, I guess in the one sense that is one of the benefits for having um, like a dedicated drive for your operating system and like applications and stuff, and then a separate drive for like actually your data so in case something happens to like the operating system and it gets like completely wrecked like your data's fine i mean yeah it's annoying to have to reinstall your applications but i mean that's better than losing all your data um and honestly like i'm not really that mad about the mac pro situation because before all this happened and my uh uh install got wrecked uh, I really only had three options to deal with the Bluetooth issue. I could either just suck it up and deal with wired peripherals. I could buy like a $120 adapter kit to get a new Bluetooth card and all the uh, other required things to upgrade the Bluetooth card that would actually work. Or I could wipe the drive and install Monterey. So pretty much the... Ventura install made that decision for me and was like, you know what? You're just going to wipe the drive and reinstall Monterey. Um, so I guess that made, made it made it easy. But I mean, I, since that was kind of one of my potential options was going to have to, I was going to, I mean, I was, would have to wipe the drive anyway if I was going to go back to Monterey. So it, it, I mean, it, it wasn't that really that big of a deal because I was kind of sort of thinking of maybe doing that anyway. Uh, but the Mac mini, was really the one that kind of hurt the most, aside from the Xserve because of the whole deadline situation that I've mentioned. Uh, but the Mac Mini kind of hurt because that one is essentially like my daily driver computer. Like I pretty much use it for like all my computing stuff, like when I'm in my office. Like that's basically my go-to Mac for, you know, when I'm in my office to do stuff. So having to lose that and have to reinstall everything on there was kind of a bummer. Um, but I will say, once I got my home directory, once I reinstalled Monterey onto the SSD and then switched my home directory back to the internal hard drive off the SSD to the other drive that was inside the Mac Mini, um, I, I have to say, like, once I reinstalled some apps, Everything was essentially back to where it was. Like, normally when you reinstall an app, you have to, like, go through and, like, change all your preferences again. But because I my actual user directory didn't get touched when the, ins the macOS install completely bricked itself, because my user directory was fine, 
all my data was still there, so when I remapped my user directory back to where it was, all those settings and configurations and everything was still there. So the application saw that and were right back the way they were. Like, the one thing I, I, I noticed the most was, like, for example, Safari. Like, I completely wiped my, dr- my drive, reinstalled the operating system, and, like, my entire Safari, like, search history, bookmarks, tab groups, all that stuff was still there. Like, it never even got wiped. And then I had, like, the same thing happen for, like, a couple other applications, too. So that was really cool and definitely very convenient for sure. Um, so that was definitely really nice. Now, this also might just be the copium talking uh, and me trying to justify to myself that all this time installing operating systems was somehow worth it. Uh, but I, I I feel like my Mac Mini is actually functioning better now than it was before. Um, like, one example that I've kind of noticed is, like, some of the sound effects are, like, actually playing through my monitor now like they're supposed to, whereas before they, like, some would come through the monitor and other stuff would just come out of the internal speakers on the Mac Mini for some reason. But now everything's coming through the monitor. And another thing that I noticed, well, it's... Probably, honestly, too early to tell because I literally just reinstalled, uh, at at least as of the recording of this podcast episode, I just reinstalled it yesterday, (laughs) so not much data to go off of. Uh, But one issue that I had with my Mac Mini was sometimes, like, the Thunderbolt display that I have it plugged into would just, like, flicker and glitch out and go crazy. But I haven't had that issue yet. Now, granted... Sometimes it this that that whole like glitchy thing would come in waves. Like sometimes it would happen frequently and it was like a you know, every 20 30 minute occurrence for like a few days in a row and then other times I would never have to deal with it for a few weeks. So I don't exactly know what that issue is. Maybe it was an operating system issue, I don't know, but so far knock on wood again, it's been running great and i haven't had any issues um now i will say while while i did chop this up to potentially being uh copium induced um it's one thing that i will say is this isn't uncommon for a complete reinstall of an operating system to make your computer feel like way faster and way better uh because one thing that can happen is if you have an os installed on like, for example, a daily driver computer that you use all the time and you're installing and uninstalling applications and, you know, going through the normal use, you're going to build up bloatware over time from like, you know, applications that you potentially don't use or when you uninstall something, they left data behind or whatever. And it just kind of gets a little messy. So just kind of like wiping everything and starting clean can sometimes bring new life into a system so it's not necessarily unheard of that this is happening so i mean there's probably a shred of truth to it uh but potentially i could be looking into it more because uh i wanted to to make my uh, all my effort feel justified um now going back to the xserve um once i got um monterey reinstalled after wiping lion um which was kind of which was obviously definitely annoying uh, for some reason, I could not get SSH access to work, which is kind of a big deal because that's how I 
transfer the backup archive file I make from my NAS over to the XServe. So if I can't have SSH access, we're going to have a problem. So for whatever reason, whenever I try to SSH into the, the XServe, it would give me this error saying Kex Exchange Identification Read Connection Reset by Peer. If that didn't make any sense to you, it didn't make any sense to me either, so don't feel bad. <laughs> um, so it gave me that error, and I don't know why, because I checked the firewall settings, everything was good there. I made sure that remote login was enabled, and that my user had permission to log in, because obviously that's like the first thing you gotta check. If your user doesn't have permission to log in, and you can't log in, well, there's your issue. But that wasn't the issue, so... About three-ish hours later, I discovered what the issue was, and for some reason, the there was no sshd config file on the XServe, even after I did a fresh install of Monterey. So I don't know why that happened, and it didn't have the sshd config file, but basically, that's the config file for like the OpenSSH server that runs on on the Mac. So if it doesn't have that config file to tell it essentially how to operate, uh, it can't serve up like the key the key swapping thing that goes on for um, the SSH authentication process. So yeah, that was a fun three hours. Um, but I will say I am pleased to announce that Mon macOS Monterey 12.6.2. Uh, is what I'm currently running now. And when I initially went through the whole ordeal of uh, getting the Lights Out management port working, that was macOS Monterey 12.6. Um, so new version. And even through all that nuking of SSDs that went on, Lights Out management still works. Um, now, if you listen to the episode that we did uh, a while back on IPMI, it shouldn't really be that big of a surprise because the baseboard management controller that controls uh, all the IPMI stuff is essentially its own computer by itself, which isn't affected by the rest of the system. So it shouldn't necessarily be a huge surprise, but it's definitely nice to see that it's still working, even though <laughs> all of the uh, nuking and explosions and destroying of data that went on on that SSD uh, to get Monterey back up and running and the XR back into a functional state. Um, now, I do plan on trying to get Ventura back up and installed again, um, but definitely that's going to be an after New Year's thing because this the past few days have been kind of a nightmare <laughs> uh, trying to, you know, get some podcasts recorded for you guys and trying to, you know, make sure that this these install situations are figured out and sorted before I leave for vacation. Um so yeah, the the life of a of an IT admin when when things go awry, it's it's a good time. Uh, but I I do plan on getting Ventura back installed again. But this time I will try to make sure I remember to actually make time machine backups, so I don't have to necessarily reinstall an operating system and reconfigure everything. Um, but I, I'll probably hold off on the Mac Pro until the open core devs uh, can figure out a solution to the Bluetooth issue because I, I kind of want Bluetooth to work. Um, that would be nice. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that was the, uh, the Christmas present that my home lab gave to me this year. 
and the the woes of <laughs> Mac OS Ventura, which nothing against Ventura. I have it installed on both of my MacBook Pros, and it's honestly on those where it's actually working. It, it's been running great, and I've been, been enjoying using it. Um, just for whatever reason, I had those bugs, um, which I guess part of it is, you know, that's part of the uh, the risk you take when you uh, install un, uh, unsupported software onto a computer. Uh, but even still, like, I guess that's kind of the uh, the risk you take when you install anything onto a computer, any kind of, like, software update. You potentially have to risk uh, things breaking, uh, which is generally why, you know, the enterprise world is generally slower to roll out updates since they want to make sure that up- updating or upgrading to the new uh, software version or OS version or whatever the case may be doesn't like completely brick everything Uh, because as you can see uh, with my experience here it can cause a decent amount of downtime uh, trying to get all that working so if you multiply that out on an entire corporate scale yeah that's that that's a bit rough Um, so yeah Uh, now speaking of software Uh, One thing that I also wanted to talk about in this episode was serialization. Now, when you're programming and writing code and doing software development, if unless you want your program to essentially be one-time use, you have to figure out a way to save any kind of data that happened to long-term storage, whether that's your hard drive, SSD, flash drive, NAS, whatever. Because otherwise, when your program runs, everything's running in memory. So unless you, and then when your program exits and finishes, that memory gets released back to the operating system and the data's gone. So if you want to retain that data once the program's done running, you have to save that data somewhere generally to either a file or a database. And the way you do that is you have to, well, I guess it kind of depends on what kind of data you're saving. If you're just saving text, you can pretty easily just write that string to a file and you're good to go. But if you want to try to save more complex things, like say you want to save like objects or classes or whatever from your program, you can't exactly just write the object to a file Uh, because if you have you know especially if like say your object contains multiple objects inside of it Um, like for example um, let's see say you're making a game and you have an object called like your inventory or whatever And then in your inventory, it contains essentially a list of other objects, which are your individual items. And maybe um, in those individual items, you have, you know, something for like your healing items that is like its own separate, you know, list of objects for the different types of healing items. And then you have like your weapons, which is a separate list of, you know, all the weapons. You can't easily uh, save that data to a file or a database or whatever because how nested everything is and how complex everything is you need a way to make essentially make that easily exportable and importable because sure you could like dump the memory maybe to like a file but then you have to if you want to be able to reuse that you have to be able to read that data back in interpret it and then recreate the objects 
to essentially restore that saved data. Now, another thing that you also have to keep in mind if you're having like these complex objects is if you're doing any kind of like data transfer, whether that's like over a network or whatever, you have to be able to send that data. And just like if you're trying to save it to a file, you can't just, I mean, sure, you could blast that memory <laughs> across the network, but there's like no way to interpret that at all. It's just garbage. So you have to figure out a way that you can basically make these complex objects in convert them into a way that you can easily uh, essentially, I don't know if encode and decode, serialize, you know, the whole serialization thing, serialize it, deserialize it and serialize it so you can basically save the data um, to a way that you can easily transmit or save to, you know, long-term storage. And then you can also easily read in and reconstruct those objects. Um, now, some of the common ways that people use uh, do serialization is through things like XML or JSON objects. So basically, uh, for the example with JSON, you pretty much have like a, it's pretty much like a key value pair, essentially. So you have like the name of whatever the field is, and then its value. And then XML is a similar um, ordeal, except it has tags rather than like key value pairs. So you'll have like um, a name tag, like tags for the name, and then in between those tags, you'll have like the the value. Um, one of the issues with XML is it's a lot more, it's a lot more, it's not necessarily computationally intensive, but there's a lot more work that has to go through when parsing an XML document because of all those tags. You have to essentially read the tag, strip the tag out. But you also have to interpret the tag to know what the uh, the data is, to know how to store it. Um, now, obviously, you could write your own serialization functions. I've written my own before. Um, but the whole point of serialization is essentially a way that you can convert the data um, that can easily be transmitted over a network or saved to a file and then also be easily um, restored back to its original state. Um, like one of the uh, programs that I'm working on, the game that I'm working on, uh, I pretty much wrote my own serialization function that's built into um, each of the individual objects. So it makes it really easy when I want to save the data to a file because I literally just call, you know, serialize this object. And then what it'll do is it'll basically convert all of the all the different data types to strings. And then if it runs into another object, like for example, when we talked about like the bag and the inventory, um, so the bag will essentially, you know, convert everything to a string. And then when it gets to something like say, uh, the healing items, it'll then call serialize the healing items. And then that'll go down into another loop and then like serialize all those healing items, add it back to uh, the bag and then you know continue on from there um, now it sounds kind of complex um, but if you think about it um, that's essentially the only way to convert data into uh, actual readable and writable information that you can save and then reload and then reinterpret and then recreate the objects um, because <laughs> You can't exactly just, you know, write an array to, you know, a file. You have to go through each individual element in order to write it to the file. 
Um, so yeah, uh, so it can definitely be complex. Um, so there is, I know, um, like Boost, if you're using C++, Boost has its own like serialization method, I believe, that you can implement. And Java, it's really easy in Java since Java has its own like you can implement serializable and you pretty much just call serialize and it serializes all your data for you. You don't even have to think about it. Um, I felt like just doing it myself since the point of the, the project that I'm working on was to try to essentially write everything as much as possible from the ground up and basically build it all myself rather than using pre-done code. Uh, the only exception I made to that rule was the graphics library, as I believe I mentioned before, mainly because I'm terrible with graphics. And if I wanted to make my own graphics library, um, that would essentially be its own entire project in and of itself. And I didn't feel like doing that. So I allowed myself the luxury of using a pre-done graphics library. Uh, but yeah, all the serialization I did myself. But yeah, serialization is definitely the key when it comes to um, saving objects so that you can then recreate those objects if you want to, you know, deal with saved data and not just have one-time use programs, or also being able to transmit data between two programs and being able to um, have an object here on one side and be able to transmit it to another program somewhere else, and that program is able to then re uh, remake that object that you sent to them exactly how it was. So that's the main point of serialization, and it's definitely something um, if you're in, interested in, you know, dealing with objects and, you know, more than single-use programs and want to be able to load data up again, um, serialization is definitely something that you're going to need to become familiar with uh, in the software development world. Now, since it's the Christmas season, I figured that we would have a little little light-hearted discussion uh, to end this episode uh, with a little bit of time that we have left, and that is the idea of WAF. Now, when you're building out a home lab, specifically in this case, WAF is something that you may or may not need to take into account uh, when it comes to building your home lab. For me, personally, WAF isn't an issue, and I don't have to worry about it or even consider it. But some of you out there might have to consider uh, WAF. Now, of course, obviously, WAF being the wife approval factor um, is something you definitely potentially have to take into consideration um, if you have a wife. Um, now, what can go into the wife approval factor? Um, now, obviously, if you while some of us might enjoy the aesthetic of a massive 42U server rack filled to the brim with servers, blowing out all kinds of air, running up the power bill, and we think that looks super cool. Um, we might be in the minority there, <laughs> and some folks do not find that as appealing as we do. Um, so if you're planning on buying some kind of hardware that is potentially an eyesore, that's definitely going to hurt you. Um, if it's the piece of hardware you're buying is a jet engine, like some servers can definitely be, not, not doing yourself any favors there. Um, now, on the other hand, if it looks good, very quiet, and not an eyesore, 
well, I guess it, that'd be if it looks good. Uh, that is is good. It's a good benefit. Now, also another benefit that can kind of offset some of these negatives is the uh, the the service that it provides. So if you have, say, a server running that, you know, basically makes the removes ads from the internet with like piehole or something and then serves up all kinds of home media streaming like all all your movies and your TV shows through like Plex or Jellyfin or something like that that's a pretty good benefit that could uh, offset some of the potential negatives and increase the the waff uh, if you will now so some ways that you can mitigate uh, the decreases to the WAF is if you potentially have like a man cave or something that you can essentially throw all of your home lab gear in that it never has to be seen or heard from. Um, that could be a way to combat the potential eyesore and jet engine noises uh, that your, your gear could make. Um, another thing uh, that could potentially help um, if you, per, well, I guess one thing to caution is if, if you do provide services that are a net benefit, uh, you have to make sure this is where the, uh, the idea of home lab versus home prod kind of comes into effect. Uh, because if you, if your home lab and home prod are kind of, or production are essentially the same thing and you push a change or want to tinker with something in the lab aspect, and that takes down something in the production aspect. Um, if you take out the Wi-Fi because you're uh, trying to mess with your PF sense, set, PF sense, sense settings, man, if I can talk, um, that's probably not going to go over too well. Um, so that that's definitely one thing uh, to be careful of. Um, now, Maybe maybe the maybe the WAF you know doesn't apply to you, um, which in your case you are very very lucky. Um, but yeah, I would say probably the your your best line of defense um, is probably having a nice secluded area where you can keep it all uh, out of sight, out of mind. Although one thing you do also have to worry about is if you have a lot of jet engines, aside from the noise factor. Uh, the power bill <laughs> might also play a role, which could also potentially uh, factor in to the the WAF there. So definitely something that you may or may not have to worry about now. Might it be something you have to worry about later? But uh, definitely a you know a very kind of fun, lighthearted uh, subject. If you ever you know troll around on the uh, the home lab like subreddit, for example, uh, every now and then you'll see things talking about like WAF factors and you know uh, how how this is either a positive for the for a WAF or how someone like uh, was going to get this, but you know the WAF just wasn't there for them or you know it, 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 it's 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 just you know, kind of fun. Um, so with that, I think that's going to that's gonna do it for this episode. So if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you leave it a, a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Uh, also, be sure to share with a friend or family member. Um, and if you have any questions uh, or have any comments about this episode or topics you want me to answer in future episodes, uh, you can shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com or you can click the link down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, 
bool nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. Merry Christmas, everyone, and I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast. <laughs>